Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. we got a lot to cover tonight, as you can see. Paul has just stated, where we picked up, we'll pick up from where we were last time, he's just stated at the end of the, chapter, the verses right before where we are in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, he's just stated that the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes Take a look at verses 16 and 17 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul is going to begin from that verse on for the next few chapters. He's going to begin a multi-chapter breakdown of the gospel. In great detail. And that's what we're going to take some time to break down over the next few weeks as we go into chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. He's going to be breaking down the gospel. And folks, let me just tell you, even though we're saved, we all need to have the gospel preached to us again and again. There's so many levels. It's so deep. It's so wonderful. The greatness of what Jesus has done for us and what is ours is so amazing. I can't wait to study it some more and share it with you. But the word gospel means what? Good news. In other words, for there to be good news, there has to be bad news first. And that's what Paul deals with now as he moves forward in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look closely. The Bible says that in order for us to be willing to receive God's gift of righteousness by faith, verse 17, we must be willing to acknowledge our sin or our lack of righteousness. The Bible calls it unrighteousness. 
But don't miss the fact that Paul uses the same word in verse 17 that he does in verse 18. Look at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed from faith for faith. Now look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. In other words, not only has God revealed that righteousness is by faith, and we dealt with that a little bit in our study earlier, God has also revealed that His wrath is toward all unrighteousness. And that's what we're going to spend some time looking at tonight. God not only has revealed that He exists, and He has revealed that He is the one who will give righteousness to those who believe in Him and His provision for their sin, but He's also revealed to the world that He is a God who deals with sin and judges sin. Unfortunately, nowadays, people want to say there's no such thing as sin. But there is. And God's revealed that. Man's unrighteousness, though, is seen, according to Paul here in Romans, in how they ignore God and they deny Him and they live for themselves and they suppress the truth. Look at verses 18 through 20 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So not only has God revealed that salvation is by faith and he's revealed that, he's also revealed that he is a God who deals with sin and he's a holy God. And he's revealed that from the beginning of creation. And look closely. The Bible says there's no one that can ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. All are without excuse. Now, there are people even out there today that say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe God exists. Well, the Bible actually says, actually, you know, there is a God. You're just suppressing the truth. Go with me to Rome, uh, sorry, Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19. Look at verses 1 through 14. Psalm chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. By the way, let me just stop real quick. Every now and then when I need to be reminded that I'm not God and that He is, I'll go outside at night and sit on my porch. Actually, we have a little deck outside the pool. And I sit on that little deck and I just look at the stars and start to just contemplate how far away they actually are and how big the universe actually is. And the Bible says he holds it in his hand. And that kind of aligns my thinking with he's God and I'm not. Look at verse 2. Day to day, God's handiwork, creation, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, creation's voice, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens. And its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, per reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, they're in righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Interestingly enough, as David writes this psalm, he talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God how God's revealed through creation His eternal powers. Then He gets to the Word of God and the law of God that's been revealed as well. And it makes Him say, I'm a sinner and I need your help. Go to Psalm chapter 50. Look at verse 6. Psalm chapter 50, verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Go to Proverbs chapter 9. Look at verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So hang, let this sink in for a minute. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of who is insight? The Holy One. How has God from the beginning decided to be, in His revealing who He is, in His holy nature, in His eternal power, His divine qualities, how has He chosen to first reveal that? Through creation. Actually, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you want to have some fun, you just highlight or underline the word God in chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, and you'll be surprised how many times God puts His name in the beginning of the book of Genesis. By the way, I've counted. It's like 31 or 32 times in chapter 1 into just barely in a couple of verses into chapter 2. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Then God said. Then God saw. Then God did. That He put His name in the beginning of the book, saying, I did this. And what do we say? Oh, there's no God. This all started by an accident. This all started from big explosion. God says, I've revealed to you from the beginning and will continue that I'm here and that I'm powerful and I'm the authority and I'm holy, and if you try to say anything different, you're suppressing the truth. Go to Proverbs chapter 9, look at verse 7. Sorry, I, got, I got the, wrote down the wrong verse, so we'll skip that. We'll go over, to, go over to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. I need to make a note in my notes here that that's the wrong place. Proverbs chapter 30, go to verses 1 through 9. Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 9. 
The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Listen closely. And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Again, we see the proper attitude of humility and say, You know what? I'm not smart. I'm not impressive. God, I need you. And then here, God even gives a hint that not only is there God, he has a son. We, of course, now on this side of the cross know who he is. His name is Jesus. He's always existed. If you actually go back and look at the scriptures, in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. He's always existed in three persons, even though he's one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's only one God, the Lord God, the Lord is one. He's always existed in three persons. Folks, let's just be honest. He's more, well, you can't figure him out. You can't understand. But if you humble yourself like a child, he'll reveal truth to you. But you've got to stop ignoring what he has revealed. You've got to stop suppressing the truth and thinking you can figure him out. Thinking that you're smarter than him. Thinking that you're smarter than people that think that he exists. By the way, do you ever think about the fact that when God wants to reveal more to humans, as we see in the scriptures, he just uses creation. Let me give you an example. Job, if you know the story of Job, starts going through the struggles that he's going through, and he starts to grumble a little bit, and he says, man, I feel like God's being unfair to me. All this shouldn't have happened to me. It's not tied to my sin. I, this isn't tied to my sin. I know this, and so if I could just have a face-to-face with God, but who can have a face-to-face with God? Then God shows up and says, hey, I tell you what, I heard you wanted to have a face-to-face with me. I understand you want to ask me a couple of questions. I got no problem with that. Let me ask you a couple questions first, and then you can just go ahead and ask all the questions you want. And then God, for four chapters, you go and double check. In chapter 38 and following, for four chapters, he says, where's the snowstorm? Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth and the angels all celebrated. How are its footings laid? Surely you know. And for four chapters, God uses only creation to prove his point. He talks about the Leviathan. He talks about the behemoth. He talks about all these different things that he has created. And he uses only creation to prove his point that he's God and Job isn't. Oh, by the way. When he was done asking Job his questions, Job said, you know what? I talked about stuff I didn't know what I was talking about. Now that I've seen you, I shut my mouth. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus comes on the scene. He's God. He's taken on human form to die for the sins of man, live the sinless life, and die for man. But while he's on the earth, even the people who are seeing him face to face were saying, you know, you're not God. 
you're demon-possessed. Even though the Pharisees knew full well that he was from God. Because Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3 and says, we know you're from God. No one could do the things you do unless God were with him. But then the Pharisees say, no, he's not from God. He does his powers by Satan. But Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking to people that are following him. And he tells them to relax and stop worrying. And what does he use to prove that we shouldn't worry? Creation. Look at the grass. Look at the birds. Learn from creation. Folks, i got to be honest with you. Many a time as I love to play golf, I'm out there and I see birds out there just kind of scattering around and picking up stuff. It's a reminder. God reminds me when I see the birds. He takes care of them. He's going to take care of me. He, God, wants to be known. He wants to be found. Go to Acts chapter 17. You're going to see Paul lay out some deep theology about God to a group of people that thought they were smart. He's about to speak to the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. And this is a group of men who are very scholarly, and they love to sit around and do nothing but talk about the latest smart thing. And they had also made all these different idols and altars to all these gods, and they even had one to the unknown God in case they missed one. Listen to what Paul says to them in verse 22, starting in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all, to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, he determined when they would be born and how long they'd live, and he determined where on the earth they would be born. Now, he did this for a reason, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even if some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Now, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss that. Paul said, let me tell you about this God that you don't know. He's actually the one who made everything and he doesn't live in temples made by human hands and he doesn't need you and I to serve him like he needs anything. And not only that, you can't make an image that's going to describe him or be like him. That's foolishness. And he's been patient with you. Paul's going to deal with that when we get into chapter 2. He's been patient with you. He hasn't dealt with your sin right away like he could have. He's actually been patient with you. But now he's commanding everyone to repent because he's proven that he is the God and the righteous judge and the one who controls life and death by raising the one he's going to use to judge the world from the dead. 
And as you've heard me say before, and I'll say it again and again, one of the most, if not the most provable event in all of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You want to do a little research? Go do, do a little digging. You'll find it is the most provable event, even though people say it didn't really happen. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Hebrew writer says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, if you can wait until we get to chapter 3 of Romans, you'll see when we get to verse 11 that no one seeks God. Not only is there no one righteous at verse 10, there's no one who understands and no one who seeks God, but the Bible says He rewards those who seek Him. Why? Because the Bible, kind of catch you up where we're going to go, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them first. And then He goes on in verse 45 and says, As it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to the Father. Now listen closely. God is saying, it's like a big game of hide and seek. He says, I'm here. I have revealed that I'm here through creation and many other ways, but I want you to come find me. You must seek me. You must believe that I exist and that I reward those who diligently seek me. So in other words, in order for man to come to God and to find God and to know God, he has to humble himself first and say, there is a God and I'm not him. But until man is willing to acknowledge there is a God who made the whole world and I need to find him, he'll never find him. And you won't find him by being smart. We'll get to that in just a second. Go to Jeremiah 29. God made this promise to the nation of Israel and it's going to be fulfilled in the days to come. But it's a promise that's ours now. In Jeremiah chapter 29, look at verses 11 through 13. Jeremiah 29, look at verse 11 through 13. God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? With all your heart. And then God goes and makes, fulfills the rest of the promise to the nation of Israel. I'll be found by you and I'll restore your land and all that. But listen, God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will be, you will find me. But you have to humble yourself. God has designed that we must come to, that we must come to him and believe in him by faith like little children. Go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Matthew 11, look at verses 25 through 30. Jesus speaks and he says, at that time he declares... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Come to me, all who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't miss this. Jesus says, I'm glad, Father, that you have not revealed these spiritual truths to the smart people. That was your gracious will. Folks, you want to know why that was God's gracious will? That how to know God was only, wasn't only available to the smart? That would leave a lot of us out. Me especially. Some of you say, oh, Jim, you're smart. Look at all the Bible verses you know. Ask my family. I'm not smart. I actually was one of those dumb jocks that faked the smart so I could play sports. And to be honest with you, I only went to school so I could play sports. And my family will also tell you, all of the classes, all I would do is sit in class and try to figure out what the professor or the teacher was wanting, give them that, and then just go play. I've been for years now living in this space coast of Florida and preaching in the space coast of Florida to people that are engineers and rocket scientists. And years ago, actually some friends of ours, uh, we decided we all go do one of those escape rooms. And I went with Thomas's mom and dad and another couple that usually come to the Bible study, but they're not here, Tom and Susan, and, and another couple. And Becky and I went, and we went to this escape room. And by the way, we went with actual rocket scientists. We were out of that room in 20 minutes. And the guy whose job is to watch you from outside the room said, you guys just set a record. And we were like, we paid for an hour. Can we try again? And they're like, no, you only get one shot. But it was like, I got to be honest with you, Becky and I will tell you, we felt stupid in that room. We were just watching them going, oh, and there would be a code. And they go, oh, that's probably the inverse of this and that and there. And, okay, put in 325. Boop, and it would open how did you do that? And then they'd come over here and say, oh, this is, got it. And Becky and I just stood there the whole time watching everybody else figure it all out. And we left the room with them. We didn't do anything. Thank God spiritual truth is not revealed to the people that are the smartest. I wouldn't be standing here. His gracious will is, though, that he reveal it to people that have humbled themselves and come like little children. If you're here tonight and you're smart, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm serious. You got a problem. Because in your whole life, you've been able to figure it out. And God says, that's not how you find me. You humble yourself and you come to me. And you ask me to teach you. You ask me to show you. Oh, for years, I've had people say, well, Jim, could you tell me? And I'll say, have you asked God? Have you looked for yourself? Well, I just figure you'll do a better job. Like God would tell me and not tell you. Folks, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's available to everyone who believes. Go to Romans chapter 1 again. See if this doesn't read a little different. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed, verses 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the smartest no, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, then he goes on and we're going to deal with the depth of what he says next in the next couple of verses. Verses 25 and 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We'll deal with why he passed over former sins. We'll deal with later on as we get into why God's been patient. Like Paul said, in the past he overlooked sins. We'll deal with all that later in our study of Romans. But for right now, what I want you to understand is righteousness is received by what? Simple faith. Childlike faith. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through Him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope, which means the certainty of the glory of God. Go to Romans 9. Look at verses 30 through 32. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. Paul's just been dealing with a very deep concept of God's plan for Israel and is saving the Gentiles for a season to make Israel jealous and how he's going to come to an end with the Gentiles and finish with Israel. And at the end of this, he's, he says this in verses 30 and 32. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in that reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now hang on for a second. How many times have you heard someone say, I could never go to God. He would never forgive me. I've done too many bad things. I've, all these things are lies that suppress the truth. Folks, the Bible is very clear. If you will humble yourself and say, I'm a sinner, I need, become, I need to become righteous, and I can't in my own. I'm not going to do anything to become righteous. I have to believe that Jesus will make me righteous. He'll just declare me righteous. Because I believe that what he did was live the sinless life. What he did was pay for my sins on, his, on the cross. He rose from the dead to display his power. And I don't know what else to tell you, except the only way I'm going to heaven is if Jesus says, you got it. That's what he's looking for. That's the faith that begins this awesome journey of salvation. But as you're going to see in our study of Romans, we still mess it up. We still muddy it by trying to help God finish the saving. I've done that over the years, still try once in a while. And that's why the whole book of Galatians was written. But even with all that God has done to reveal himself and his holiness and his wrath against unrighteousness, and with all that he's done to show his love and patience and mercy, mankind chooses to worship almost everything else instead of him, including things of their own creation. Go back to Romans 1. Look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God. Remember, he just said the whole world's without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me show you something that God says back in Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, I want to read to you verses 6 through 20. I want you to listen closely to what God says here. And you're going to hear a little bit of humor. Irony. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Now all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither sees nor know that they may be put to shame. Sorry, their witness is, neither see nor know that they be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and, it, and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails, and he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out and with a pencil, and he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it, and he makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats meat. Over the half he eats meat, and he roasts it and satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, small g, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie? In my right hand. Isn't that interesting? God says, look, have you ever thought about the fact that you took from the same tree and cooked your, your food and warmed yourself with part of it? Then you took the rest of that tree, made yourself an idol and bowed down to it like it was your God? What if you picked the wrong half? But be careful. We can say, well, Jim, besides the Buddhists and some of these other people that, and some of these other religions all around the world that have these different shrines and idols and temples and things like that. We don't do that here in America. Well, let me just say a couple of things real quick. Um, first off, 
Remember the nation of Israel and how God brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land and they had to go through a journey of revealing himself to them with his power of splitting the Red Sea and the river of Jordan and the walls of Jericho and all this stuff. They get out in the wilderness and uh, Moses goes up on a mountain for a few days. And what do they do in the time period between when Moses goes up before he comes down? They said, make us an idol that we can worship it. And they form this golden calf and begin Man has a desire within him to worship. Some of the things that are our own creation nowadays are what? Wealth, intelligence, things that we have done with our own hands. Be careful. Some of us even worship government. Be careful. Don't put your faith in anything else besides God. Again, please don't hear me wrong. We need to be involved in the political process because the Bible says that we've been blessed and we've been given a responsibility and a privilege. Don't you dare put your hope in the political process. You'll be disappointed. Because actually the Bible says, who actually controls the political process? God does. He raises up kings. He removes them. He's the one that controls it all. As we just saw, though, at the end of these verses, don't miss this. Go to verse 18 of chapter 44. I don't want you to miss this. They, do, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. As we just saw here at the end of this passage in Isaiah, when people persist in worshiping things other than the one and only God, he will, at the time of his choosing, hand you over to your own wishes. The Bible is very clear, and I'm going to take some time tonight to lay this out for you. The Bible's very, very clear that there comes a point where God says, I've given you enough light. I've given you enough opportunity. I've given you enough revelation for you to respond. You're not going to. And so I'm now going to shut the door so that you will not ever be able to. That's a dangerous place to be. You say, wait a minute, Jim, didn't Jesus said to whom uh, he reveals the father to whom he chooses? He's already predetermined who. No, no, no. Listen closely. Who does the Bible say that he chooses to reveal the Father to? Everyone who is humble and comes like a child and believes that he exists. He chooses those who come to me in this manner. Go all the way back to when God tells Gideon, hey, I want you to round up some people to go fight the Midianites. And by the way, Midianites, you couldn't even count their camels. And so God helps. You go look in the story. God helps Gideon raise up 32,000 men. And then God says to Gideon, you got too many. Let all the ones who are afraid go home. And 22,000 say thank you, and they go home. Then God says, you still got too many. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the 10,000 that are left, and I want you to have them all go down to this river, and the ones who drink in the manner that I've predetermined are the ones I've chosen. Now, all the guys had the freedom to choose however they wanted to drink. But God had predetermined the method in which they drank was how he's going to choose who was chosen. And from that, there were only 300. In other words, if you remember, there's this man who God's been revealing to us all through the beginning of creation, all the way through. This one that he said back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that was going to be born of the woman and crush Satan. This one that Scripture has been pointing to all along, the branch from David, one of Jesse's roots. This one that was going to fulfill the prophecies, the one who has come on the scene, the one who has risen from the dead, this one, Jesus, 
himself one day stood, John chapter 7, verses 37 and following say this, he stood at the great feast in Israel and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. God has already pre-chosen the manner in which we are to drink in order to come to him. What's been predetermined is not who will be saved, but how we'll be saved. And that is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, at the same time, he's given us enough light to respond. He's given us enough light to, to, to believe. But if we choose to ignore that light and we choose to suppress the truth, there will come a time, because he determines how much light we all get. We've already talked about this in detail. Remember how Jesus said, it'll be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum? Because if the miracles that have been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Jesus said, I gave Capernaum more light than I did Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged according to how much light they received. Capernaum will be judged in higher standards. So God does, in his plan of salvation, we've got to be faithful to Scripture, he gives some people more opportunity than others. But at some point, he chooses when he will shut your eyes. He will harden your heart. He's already said that. I will do that. Let, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 12. This, I say this to you to say, if you're here today and you're not listening to what I'm talking about, you don't know how much time you have left to respond, and we pray that you do. I'm going to keep preaching to everyone like their opportunity goes all the way to the day of their death because I am not God and I don't make that call. I will never determine, well, I think you've already passed your point. I'm going to share you the gospel until the day that you die. But I also got to be faithful to the scripture and say, you don't have possibly till the day that you die. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 35 through 43. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, because they would not believe, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Don't miss that. They had enough light. He says, believe while you have the light, because there comes a time when there's no more light, and you can't believe anymore. And because he had done so many signs, they still wouldn't believe. And then there comes a point where God says, okay, you've had your opportunity. And he makes it so they can't. We've seen, and we'll get to that, we get to chapter 11 of Romans, that Israel as a nation has experienced a hardening in part, not a complete hardening, but he's definitely dimmed the light that they have right now to be saved while he's saving the Gentiles. And so what I want to do is I want to show you, and I want you to try to track with me here. Go with me to Exodus chapter 7. I'm going to do this fast because many people will say, well, God, the example that God doesn't give people a chance is he already said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let's take a look at the scripture and let the scripture speak. Go to Exodus chapter seven. Look at verses one through five. So the Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But listen closely. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply many signs, my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God says to Moses, let me fill you in on what's going to happen at the end of this story. You're going to come out of Egypt. It's going to happen after I harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden his heart. But that does not mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart from day one. I'm going to show you from the scriptures that God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until many, many, many days later. It's actually at the beginning, Pharaoh still had an opportunity. Go. Now we're going to hit this quickly. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Again, as you're going to see in just a little bit, this is Pharaoh's choice, not God's choice yet. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. Jump over to chapter 8. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh's hardening his own heart at this time. Look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Jump over to chapter 9. Actually, no, go to verse 32 real quick in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Jump down to chapter 9. Look at verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now look at verse 12. Something happens in verse 12. But the Lord now hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he didn't listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Jump down to verse 34. God gives, so in verse 12 of chapter 9, God hardened Pharaoh's heart that time. He gives Pharaoh one more opportunity. Verse 34 of chapter 9. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now look at verse 35, and you'll notice it has changed from this point on. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Look at verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart now? God is. Look at verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. If you do a faithful study of the scripture, God's right when he tells Moses, there's going to come a point that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to let you go, but I'm going to do miracles in your presence, and all of Egypt is going to know that I'm the Lord when I bring you out. But at the beginning, Pharaoh had a choice, and he made the wrong one over and over, but there came a point where God says, I'll give you one more opportunity. 
And then he shuts the door. Go back now with me to Romans chapter 1. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 24. We've just talked about how they suppress the truth. They worship other things besides God claiming to be wise. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, you'll see it again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Through the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, Covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them, even in their governments. The Bible tells us very clearly, folks, that one of the evidences of God giving people over to their own lusts is the evidence of what we're seeing today in our world, and especially in the United States. Homosexuality, perversion, people just living for self. You've noticed how over this past weekend across the globe, there's starting to be all some of these groups of people that are just smashing and grabbing and looting stores. Seems kind of, some of us have lived a little while on earth, never thought we'd ever see a day like that. Well, go with me to 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 9. But understand this. That in the last days, there'll come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. By the way, that sounds familiar. Wasn't that also in Paul's list in chapter 1? That's crazy. I thought it was just sexual sin he was dealing with. No, it manifests itself lots of ways. Ungrateful unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, having the appearance of godliness, oh, they'll say they're spiritual. They may even go to church. They may even find churches that approve of their sin and call it spiritual. They might even say God's okay with it, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them, he goes on and says, there are those who creep into households and capture weak women with burned with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also will oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. 
But don't worry, they're not going to get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick. I want you to stay somber with me for a second. And I need to give us all a word of warning before we close tonight. But we're not going to get to the warning just yet. But look at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Now I, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. He's given them over, in other words, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he goes on and says, but that's not how we're supposed to be. So the Bible's very clear that in the last days, we're going to see wickedness increase. We should not be, I can't believe what's going on in the world. We just got to change the laws. We just got to get things turned back to how they used to be. Folks, believe the Bible. Jesus said, it's going to get worse. As he was being led to the cross and the people were weeping, he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He says, because if they'll do this while I'm on the earth, just think what it's going to be like when I'm not here. And folks, let me just say something to you as lovingly as I can. It's going to get worse. And one of the evidences that God has given people and a nation over is when that nation starts to manifest itself in a lot of the stuff we're seeing. Some of that being homosexuality. And I know there's going to come a day where I may be put in jail because I said that. It's what the Bible said. But I want to give you a word of warning. This is where Christians make the mistakes. They all of a sudden want to jump on that one sin and make themselves righteous judge. Because I wouldn't do that. I don't do that stuff. And we totally forget that Paul didn't finish writing the book of Romans at the end of chapter 1. Let me give you a commercial for two weeks from now, and we're going to meet together. Go to Romans chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 11. We're not going to break this down. I'm just going to give you a little commercial for where we're going to go so that you can keep yourself from getting self-righteous. He just listed out how God's wrath against, against sin and how he's given over and the evidences he's given people over is all this stuff's going to happen. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's going to render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul says, and we're going to get into this in a lot more detail when we meet in a couple weeks. Paul says, look, as much as I pointed out all this stuff that's going on in the world, as much as God's wrath is against this sin, don't make the mistake of all of a sudden going, I'm not there. I don't know about you folks, but even though there are sexual sins that I'm not tempted with, I still struggle with temptations in areas of sexual sin. Probably you do too. Although the Bible talks about living for self and being disobedient to God and disobedient to parents and all these different things, there's probably some measure that you all still have a little bit of that yourself. I thank God we've been forgiven of that stuff, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that that's who we have been and we've been washed. But don't get to the point where all of a sudden we don't look like Jesus. There are churches that will go and stand and picket outside the death of a, a funeral of a homosexual because God's wrath is against you. And there are churches that are out there in the name of God pointing the finger and saying this is horrible and God hates you and all this stuff. And we just read that God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. Jesus knew that Judas was going to keep making the wrong choice and end up ending up killing himself because of his distress. But till the end, Jesus kept calling him friend. And folks, those of us who have been washed, those of us who have been made right through faith in Jesus Christ, should never, ever lose sight of the fact that but for the grace of God, that would be me out there too. And we need to love these people by pointing them to Jesus, by reminding them that all this stuff you think is going to make you happy, if you're honest, deep down, it's not satisfying you. Let me tell you, the only answer is you've got to humble yourself and acknowledge there's a God and you're not him. When we get to that place, we can lovingly help them escape the fire by pointing them to the only one who can wash them clean the same way you and I have been washed. I know some of us struggle a lot when we watch the Christians who have been captured in other countries and lined up on a beach and beheaded. And some of you have watched the video. I just can't do it. And we get in this righteous rage at these terrorists. Do you know who wrote the book of Romans, right? A, a terrorist named Paul who was doing the very same thing, going city to city with authority and approval to put to death Christians who put faith in Jesus. We all celebrate that God saved him. Don't give up on the people around us in this world. It's going to get worse, but don't give up on them. Share with them the love of Jesus. Point them to Jesus, not by being a judge, but by being a friend. Don't ever prove that what they do is okay. Don't say, oh, no, God thinks it's all right. No, 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 it's still sin. But he forgave me, and he'll forgive you. I love you all. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.